everybody. Wow. We're up to 17 now. I, you know, we were just, I was just joking with Kara about uh, we're the only people that care the number of the episode, I think. But anyway, this is the, the Learning Curve Podcast, episode 17. And Kara, how are you? I'm very well, Bob. And I think, you know, 17th episode is really important because for se- almost 17 weeks in a row, I mean, a few little hiatuses there, we have, um, we've been interviewing some really cool people. Just, you know, like it's well, a fun thing to do. I'm doing well. It's dark so up here I, in Boston. But I think what that, you mean to say is that we've been saving America's children. And you're, yeah. you're, you're way of saying uh, that. Of course we have. Sitting in our offices behind microphones while the rest of the world is like teaching America. Sure, Bob. <laughs> oh, good. All right. I, I like uh, affirmation and uh, approbation, whether it's sincere or otherwise. So I'll and, hyper- and hyperbole. We're good. <laughs> All right, so everybody, uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. And later in the show, we're going to have just to tease our guest. Kara, why don't you tease the guest interview? Later in the show, we are going to talk to the wonderful Monty Alvarado of the Beckett Fund and really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a cool conversation. All right. All right, let's get to the uh, brought to you by the Choice Media Newswire. Let's get to the stories of the week. We will, by the way, our uh, smartphone app is. Uh, uh, available for the low, low price of free. So check it out today by searching Choice Media. All right. So I also think up- you just really quickly, you need to plug the great Choice Media story of the day because uh, two of my uh, friends have been on it recently and I have to say they did very well. Oh, Lizette thank you. Reynolds yes, and we, Quentin do a, da- we do a daily, meaning weekday, a daily weekday that is uh, video commentary from around the country. Uh, you know, in our, just one second on this, Kara, it's just kind of a principle I believe in and I've been kind of trying to work on, which is that, you know, the school choice and ed reform, uh, you know, group, we, we kind of are a community. I've kind of always felt like there are these disparate elements that sometimes, sometimes we want to kill each other, Bob. But yeah, yeah. sometimes they argue over that, you know, oh, we disagree about three percent or, you know, six point two percent of, you know, issues or policies. And so we'll focus on those disagreements and ignore the you know, 93 to 98 percent we agree on. I think it. we really th- this group, the people listening to our words, we are a community and we kind of seek to foster that with a daily video commentary from a different place in the country uh, every day. But also Look through this Bob, podcast, you're, you're bringing the happiness today. I, I love yeah. it. What's going Thank- on? You, you, you okay? I'm so happy about that. I think you're right. I would, as a member of the community, I would go correct the use of the term education reform because I'm pretty sure it's a dirty term now. But you know just what, saying. I know that, but my view is bring it back. You know, like let's let's bring back. Does it sound like the word voucher is supposed to be, oh, well, let's use, uh, let's say scholarships. My view is like go ahead and just bring. Look, if I think something makes sense, I think we should not shy away because the other side is trashed a term. I have no problem with. And that's and, and other other you see that other times in. Uh, well, gee, take the word socialist. That got pretty trash for a number of years, but the left has seemed to try to bring good. that back. You know. <laughs> So anyway, I believe in bringing back terms like reform and uh, edu- you know education reform. Anyway, keeping, I feel it, keeping that, it old school. All right, I let's go. We are, I feel we are a community. We have a lot in common. We ought to get to. We ought to help each other more. We ought to. We ought to think of ourselves as uh, something of a voting block. And so anyway, so. Oh, I was just going to say, and next week, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Bowden's going to explain how we like reach outside of our community to those who disagree with us and have a kumbaya moment. 
Okay. No, you're not going to go there? Okay. And I'll get you there in a year. Okay. On to our stories. All right. So, uh, Choice Me Newswire. Story number one. More charter operators offering a plan B to alumni who drop out of traditional college. I almost think this story was headlined wrong, but let me say why. So we're talking about this guy named Nick Nick Chapa. He went to the IDEA charter school in the Texas Rio Grande Valley. He enrolled in college, then he couldn't keep up, and he dropped out. Okay, not an unusual story. Then he later re-enrolled and re-dropped out. Time out, time back in. It's He's now 28 years old with a wife and a kid. He gets a call from an administrator from his old high school, the IDEA Charter Network. This administrator told him about a new college program called IDEAU that would allow him to take coursework online with the support of a coach. So he signed up saying, I figured I had nothing to lose. So Mr. Chapa is now part of a growing effort, this Chalkbeat story explains, by charter school operators to help their graduates earn college diplomas in a non-traditional way by overseeing some of the college experience themselves. And it's Turns out there's several different charter schools around the country doing this, not just the IDEA. And they're all partnering with this one university, which I feel like I'm the last person to not know about. Oh, my gosh. Southern New Hampshire. Okay, well, you live in yeah. Massachusetts. Okay. It's in my backyard. Yeah. Southern New Hampshire University. Okay, that's everybody. That's what this university is called. Southern New Hampshire University offering low-cost online college programs. Online college programs. It's and the pretty high quality, team. they say. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The partnership means the charter operators are coaching the students, but it's the universities providing the coursework and conferring the degrees, uh, et cetera. So this is not just, like I said, not just the IDEA charter school in Texas, also the Noble Charter Network in Chicago. Um, And Match in Boston. And Match in Boston. And so some, yeah, Noble, uh, some people think that's the best charter school CMO in Chicago. Pretty amazing. Uh, And so... They now enroll nearly a thousand students. It says the charter operator, other charter charter operators say they're watching this closely. There are no lectures, uh, you know, in person, no class discussions in person. But students are assigned readings and videos. They work at their own pace instead of a set academic calendar, and it's affordable. This whole thing costs between fifty five hundred a year and seven thousand dollars a year. So compared to almost any. Any other college, four-year degree, and maybe there's some community colleges at that rate, but I think compared to any four-year degree college, that would be seen as cheap. And so with all of that preamble, um, Kara, you're – your it's, thoughts about this? Yeah, story. my thoughts. Well, first of all, let's point out that that tuition can be covered by your average Pell Grant, too, which is pretty cool. So this is, to me, this story is all about, like, part of the reason charter schools, um, you know, have been implemented. And that is to to locate a problem, to try and solve that problem with new and innovative ideas. So, you know, I think that in the past sort of 25 years of the charter movement, one thing that really that, that folks who've been watching have located is that, you know, you got a lot of charters out there that are making promises to send kids to college and they might get them in, but they don't always retain them. And so the idea that instead of just continually like trying to fake it, um, these charter operators are saying, no, man, we need to do better is pretty amazing. And I think that, you know, there's, there's kind of two things here. And some of it is, as we all know, as the cost of college is just always increasing astronomically, um, that, that folks get in and they find that even if they have scholarships or other things that not only is it unaffordable, but they can't pay for the other things in their lives that they need to. But then the other thing, which I think we don't talk about nearly as much, is that so often when kids leave high school, especially kids who might be 
first generation college or something, they're simply not prepared to navigate the landscape and they might not have the kind of social support, social capital connections that students who have had, you know, generations of their parents and grandparents going to school um, are are able to um, tap into and to experience. And so this program to me, you know, really locates that and says, hey, we're going to focus on, we can help you access the content. That's the job of the university. But we're going to focus on the supports. And those are, you know, supports in the social manner, supports in the just like, this coaching isn't necessarily about, oh, let me tutor you. It's about, let me support you through you full-time working parent of what it takes to, you know, get through college. Now, one of the critiques of this that was mentioned in the article was like, oh, well, then this, you know, deprives people of the traditional college experience, <laughs> a traditional liberal. And I'm thinking yeah. two things here. I'm thinking yeah. like, number one, you know, at some at what point is that just going to be unattainable even for pr- comparatively very wealthy people? And no, I think no. I'd be pleased. They, 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 unless they can prove they're getting drunk on their own with a po- photo of a frat party up <laughs> in the background, unless they can prove that, you know, then that's not the real college experience. Right, right? of passage. Right? But the other thing is, is that not only is this about customization, which opens up a world for people, I also think, too, that if we can say that beyond, you know, getting drunk and making posts on Instagram, that there is value in, you know, sort of this, the college experience that what something like this might do is make universities wake up and realize that part of the reason kids drop out, especially, you know, kids who are first generation college is not because they can't hack it academically. It's because of the social stuff. So I think that this is a really cool idea. I think we should watch it. I want to see it scale and, you know, cheers to the, cheers to the thinkers, cheers to the people who are spearheading this. I mean, and and just I, I hate to state the obvious, but if I to get some uh, free state the obvious points here, I'll spend. Uh, you know, p- p- please. You know, we're told the charters are these you know venal money grubbing people trying to privatize education to steal money. Wait, so they're doing this for without special funding for it? I mean, you mean a twenty eight year old former graduate of a charter school? They're actually helping that person without getting extra money for the twenty eight year old that they're helping? What? Wh- gee, how how does that of you know further their cause for you know venal gratification and you know greed you know like oh, please it's like uh, so I just would would just say again I'm, I'm like you I feel uh, uh, optimistic at this kind of story it just seems innovative I think you know all stream all you know full steam ahead okay so story number two we go to the beautiful state of Maine oh, gee it's like all in your neighborhood these days I know we're Families. so cool. <laughs> Family, I, I, I've been, to, I've been to Maine a few times as a kid and as an adult. I, it is gorgeous. Anyway, families argue in appeal that Maine should pay tuition at religious schools. All right, buckle your seatbelts, folks. Three families, three families arguing the state of Maine should pay tuition for their children to attend private religious schools because they live in school districts with no high schools. School districts with no high schools. Okay, they made their case. Who says rural America doesn't need school choice, Bob? But please, go okay, on. Yeah. Before a federal appeals court, the, fam- the court, the families have uh, pointed to a 2017 Supreme Court ruling called Trinity Lutheran, in which the court decided a church preschool should be able to benefit from public funding to resurface a playground to uh, – uh, and they're making that argument for the to the Maine Department of Education – 
uh, saying the main Department of Education should pay their out-of-district tuition at religious schools. Okay, so you're in a place without a high school, a district anyway. So this uh, main district uh, judge uh, uh, ruled in favor of the Department of Education in June upholding the main law that prohibits state tuition money from being used at religious schools. However, he also said the Supreme Court case did not definitively upend case law barring public money from going to religious education, etc. So I, I think most of us kind of know the bones of, of what this is about. It basically, the Trinity Lutheran case, as we've covered before in the podcast, was a case where money was going to fix playgrounds uh, at, you know, uh, at school. And so this, uh, this one school said, oh, okay, how about money for our, fix our playground? And they sent an application and the, and this was in Missouri, and they said, oh, it fits our criteria. Okay, sure, here's your grant. They're like, wait a minute, whoa, you're a religious school? Oh, we're going to retract our grant. Our grant only goes to fix, like, you know, public school playgrounds, not your playground. Your kids on playgrounds don't get public money for playgrounds. Only the secular school playgrounds get the money. Anyway, so the Supreme Court... Uh, sided with the religious school in the Missouri case. And now you have kind of a form of that in Maine where they're saying, look, why can't this just apply to tuition too? Forget playgrounds. Let's just make this a case where we will use our, uh, we, we will argue that the Department of Education money should go to a religious school for educational purposes, not just for swing sets. Kara Kendall, what do you say? Well, I say very cool. So I had the opportunity actually yesterday to go and hear this case be argued because it was being argued here in Boston. Oh, good and um, and I ran into some of my amazing colleagues from Pioneer, Jamie Gass, Charlie Chippio. But so you, yes, you you you've summarized the case very well. You could you could have argued it yourself, Bob. But <laughs> what, one of the things that's so interesting here is and so number one, Maine Town Tuitioning Program. You know, it's been around for a very long time. Probably one of the earliest choice programs out of necessity, as you point out. You don't have a high school. But the thing is, is that my understanding is that, and I'm sure listeners will correct me if I get this wrong, that you can actually take the money to a private school as long as it's not a religious school as long as it's not as yeah that was a, there was a new hampshire case also that uh, too where the court in new hampshire had ruled that they they violate you know the, the, the tax credit scholarships could could be used at private secular schools but not private religious schools and so, so yes it does came out in the, the arguments focus, too it's focus like, on this question of like is secularism a belief system but anyway, well, I'm interrupting. Yeah, but I mean, even down at a more tactical point, Bob, it's sort of like you're thinking about. So if you're, if it's, say, it's the Department of Education that's administering whatever program it is, and I assume it is, right? That it, you're talking about, like, who's going to go dissect that curriculum? I mean, how? And let's say this: I think we can all agree there are probably a lot of, for example, Catholic schools out there that, aside from maybe the religious iconography that's on the walls that they, you know, that nobody has um, looked at in 25 years, not only are they really not even serving Catholic kids, they're probably doing very little that has anything to do with Catholicism. And I know a lot of people out there will say, but that's not what we want. But in some parts, that is, that, that is indeed oh, true. Oh, my, I've interviewed I myself, Jewish kids who went to Catholic school, because, you know, and they, and they had no problem with it. They're huge of supporters course. of Catholics. And so this is about this idea of, like, is somebody going in and auditing what's being taught during the day? Or do you have to think, like, what is it? Are you excluded if you start every day with a prayer, but then from, you know, from 830 to 330, there's not a mention of anything except the 
the, the curriculum. Right. So it becomes really complicated. And as you pointed out, um, you know, Institute for Justice argued very well. I think that they're they're looking at this through the lens of Trinity Lutheran. But of course, everybody's all looking to um, the Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue case, which we've been talking about, which is going to be heard later this month. It's interesting to see the intersection between these two things. And I will also just say that listening to um, the argument from the state yesterday, you one sort of got the impression, as my great colleague Jamie Gass put it, that they were just a little bit exasperated because they'd been back in court about this for several times. Mm. And it's like the people, we're going to keep pushing on this. And as the law gets closer and closer to recognizing the rights of parents instead of looking at this as, you know, that uh, a decision that belongs to schools and bureaucracies, you can feel sort of this, the argument eroding. So a really interesting one, one to watch. And, um, and Pell Grants are used at Notre Dame and Seton Hall and all oh, kinds of capital. yeah, but I mean, you can't talk about higher education, Bob, please. <laughs> I mean, it's the same principle. Why is it? Why not? Of why not? course it is. Yeah, of course it is. Right. <laughs> so, the, so, um, so to that, you know, to people who say, you know, who act like this is some sort of, you know, uh, church and state separation line in the sand that cannot be crossed, they, you know, they, they, just want to just ignore the the higher education you know aspect or dimension of it, and of course the ACLU weighing in saying this would be devastating for religious freedom. The ACLU saying like you know yeah the religious freedom requires that no state money ever go yeah, to yeah not a not a circuitous argument at all right and just one other second on this, Karen. Like uh, just to ask you, like to me, isn't secularism is just as much a belief system as Protestantism, Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, isn't it? I mean, doesn't modern secularism and most I, of Christian course. Faith, so, Bob, now I would agree with you completely, but aren't we in our own echo chamber here? So we should probably. Uh, you know, an agree, interesting agree thing would up. be to have somebody somebody on the podcast that really thought we were both wrong on that. I came up in the school. Yeah, I, didn't of you, I, didn't think, I didn't know you would agree with me on that. I actually thought, I actually, you know, like, so yeah, my. Uh, my I'm view, crazy, but I'm not as crazy as you think. <laughs> my, more crazy is revealed each week. That's why people tune in. <laughs> You're welcome. Don't you? So, so my point is that, like, positions on, uh, you know, that, that modern secular secularism teaches kids a position on abortion, on homosexuality, on the boundaries of sexual fidelity. Many of these positions being antithetical to many religious faiths. That secular schools. You know, indoctrinate if you want to use that that verb, but somehow impart or teach or inculcate kids with with views on these things. They walk well, out. Well, let's let's be they're not careful because I wouldn't say that public schools. Um, I think that they walk a very fine line. In fact, most of them, I, I, I would shy away from the word indoctrination because I think that public schools mainly send a message about things by not talking about it because they are afraid of talking about these things. But, I, but I think it is true kids, that public schools I'm in some about the places, overall there's culture. a culture, yeah, right? I, yeah. that, there is a culture that tells kids what's thing, but let's be really careful not to not to put that on, you know, the public school curriculum or the people who are working in public schools. But yeah, it's it's a we we are in the midst of it. It's a different cultural moment. I it's, accept I accept your distinct. We're talking over each other for a second there, but I accept your distinction on that. But I would just say the larger picture is what is what's relevant to parents: the overall cultural effect of the school, not necessarily if it's in curriculum. But the, sure, and some parents want the cultural effect that they're getting in public schools, which is great. Indeed. And, and, and what I'm trying to say is that the culture of all effect of secular public schools often in, mo I would say particularly public, uh, urban and, and suburban, I'm, I'm not so sure about rural public schools, but, but, but it is often the cultural effect, the net cultural effect 
is anti-religious in certain areas. The net that net cultural flow cannot be just dismissed as a religious. It is in fact real. Do you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, I'd like I'd like to see some data. I think it depends on where you live, but I do I do absolutely take your point. Like let let's not forget that I think that there's still a lot of prayer that goes on in public schools. And when I say prayer, I mean probably mostly Christian prayer that goes on in a lot of public schools and places across this country, right? So I'm not we, saying we that's that- right or wrong, but I think that, you know, we are, our sensitivities are sometimes heightened to these things, depending on where we live, how we grew up, and the, co- the community that we live in. in I, see, very I say this, I am not a reli- I'm not a religious person, but I say this just simply being aware of the effect of it. Anyway, so it turns out, actually, I, on another level, I was right, Carrie. We disagreed after all to some, anyway. I all right. Got to bring it home every three. time. Okay. All right. Bum, 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 bum. Number three. How evaluation ratings impact teacher pay? I love NCTQ National Center for Teacher Quality. I love these guys. They looked at 124. This is another story, news story, by the way, that I suddenly, you know, I, I, I suddenly was revealed to be, you know, not quite as uh, aware as I thought I was of the. Uh, of the of everything, but uh, uh, but uh, yes. Yeah, so they sum they summarized 124 large school districts around the country about teacher pay and essentially whether incentive or merit pay uh, exists and to what extent. And they found, to my surprise, that uh, nearly half of the districts in their sample, 48 percent, now offer some sort of performance pay based on a teacher evaluation rating. Now, sometimes that means less pay if you're a bad teacher. Other times it means more pay if you're a good teacher. Other times it means both. Other times it means other things. But they just mean, in general, 48 percent off less than half. So it's still not half, but but almost half offers some form of performance pay, which is considered an obvious thing to do in every other industry in America. No matter where you are, it's considered it would be considered a laughable joke to get rid of performance pay in literally almost every other thing we do in the entire country. And yet, I'm surprised that it's almost 50, 48% actually offer some form of performance pay for teachers. And again, there's some caveats. Uh, they're only... There are only 16 districts that they looked at out of their total of 124 that where a teacher's evaluation rating dictates the size of a salary increase. And 14 of those 16 are in Florida. <laughs> so just to offer a little perspective, it is sometimes skewed heavily by state. But anyway, what do you think about performance pay, Kara, and that almost half the districts have in this study had some form of it? Well, I think that I'm really, number one, I'm encouraged by a couple things in this article. The first being that they note at the outset that teacher evaluations, generally speaking, have become more rigorous. And I think that that's really, really important. Now, on the other hand, Bob, I am discouraged by the fact that of these districts that they studied that do reward teachers or based on evaluations, that it, it's not, they're not differentiating between just average teachers and the most effective teachers. It's either like you're low performer, so we're not going to reward you, um, or you're hyper. They're not, they're not differentiating for excellence. And I think that when we think about what it's going to take, you know, we have professionals working in teaching, but teaching is not treated as a profession. And so what it's going to take to, to make that happen is going to be just 
recognizing excellence. And when you recognize excellence, I like to think that you bring other people up to the bar of excellence. Right. And, and we're not doing that yet. The one other thing I would say is as much as I think teacher evaluations are important, and yes, I agree with you, we do this. You know, if I weren't performing at my job by whatever measures my job entails, I probably wouldn't have my job and I certainly wouldn't be getting a raise just for hanging around. But yeah. um, I still think that as important as teacher evaluations are, we've we've got this whole system backwards. And it, when it comes to teachers, I want to hear more talk about creating a higher bar for entering this profession, so that you know we're talking about really rating excellence and 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 really differentiating between. Yeah. You need a marketplace for that. I believe that with if uh, government monopolies will never have that. Any any government monopoly never has that. You need a marketplace for that, in my opinion. Also, to, another thing I wanted to say too is we talk about. You know, if, if it's you're like, wow, this is encouraging. Half of the districts have some sort of performance pay. Yeah, sometimes it's it's a pretty good chunk, fifteen thousand dollar jump in salary, for example, yeah, in some of that's the programs. Nice, huh? Other places, that's eh, fifteen hundred jump in salary. So it's like, okay, it's you know, that's about what you get for quitting the union in a lot of states. <laughs> <laughs> you make a point. <laughs> All right, so those are our stories, and Kara uh, will have the interview duties this week. Kara, what's coming up after the break? Uh, up next, we're talking to Monse Alvarado of the Beckett Fund and looking forward to it. See what she has to say about uh, issues related to our main town tuitioning case. Up in a minute. We are so thrilled to have with us today Monsi Alvarado. Monsi Alvarado joined the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty in 2009 and was named VP and Executive Director in February 2017. With a background in public policy and campaigns, she's led initiatives at Beckett in development, communications, strategy, and operations that have helped secure religious liberty victories. Monsi has appeared on Univision, CNN and Español, Telemundo, Fox Business, and EWTN. Born in Mexico City, she's fluent in Spanish and French, and she's also a competitive jazz and classical vocalist, which is pretty awesome, a uh, <laughs> master's degree from George Washington University and a BA from the great Florida International University. Monsi, thank you so much for joining us on The Learning Curve today. Thank you so much for having me. You make me sound much more interesting than I actually am. <laughs> uh, I, I, I doubt that is true. So for our listening audience, I think it would be great to just start off by um, telling us a little bit about the Beckett Fund and about yourself. What is it that you guys do that we in the world of K-12 education need to know more about? Sure. So we're a nonprofit law firm based in Washington, D.C. that defends religious freedom for all. Sounds easy, right? Um, you're defending religious freedom as a human right. It is something that comes out of our human dignity, something that is natural and um, inherent in every single individual person and should be protected um, by the government um, and should not be infringed upon by the government. And that's where we come in. As a law firm, all we do is litigate cases. We look for the right cases that are going to change the law to crack open that liberty so that you can use it. I like to say that we're here holding the line in the court of... Um, in litigation, in the Supreme Court, in the, the lower courts, so that you can come in and use it. My work is useless unless, even in the K through 12 school level, um, ministries, homeless shelters, et cetera, unless there's a robust use of this freedom, my work is, is rendered useless. So I need you guys to come in and use that public square and use your religious freedom to talk about the ideas and um, 
and and be a part of society uh, compelled by those ideas and those beliefs uh, as much as you can. Wow. Fantastic. So I would love it, Monty, if you could tell us a little bit. So I'm, I'm looking here and I see that that um, the Beckett Fund, you've won several cases before the Supreme Court, but also better than 90 percent of the time in lower courts, you have won cases. Now, of course, many of our listeners will know because folks who subscribe to this podcast are are very interested in school choice for the most part, That at least that's what we think. Um, <laughs> and, and so many of them will know that there's a big case that's being heard coming up on January 22nd, I believe. Um, um, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. And I'm really curious to know about cases that that you all have previously argued before the Supreme Court. And then in addition to that, um, what are your thoughts on this case that we're all looking to, especially those who advocate for private school choice um, in the next month here? Sure. So in our long 25-year tradition of existence at the Beckett Fund, we have one seven Supreme Court cases, and some of them are going to be very familiar because they were very high profile, like Hobby Lobby, defending the rights of conscience for a business, a closely held family business that wanted to run it according to their religious beliefs. Um, The Green family are brave people who are willing to shut down their business if the government was going to force them to provide drugs and services to their employees that ended life or threatened life because they are you know, fervently pro-life. And they won their case at the Supreme Court, represented by Beckett and helped out by a bunch of people just like you who were interested in their story. Um, And we also have uh, defended and currently continue to represent Little Sisters of the Poor, who I think a lot of people didn't know what that order was, but now they know uh, because of their case against the government and the Obama administration and now Pennsylvania and California, um, defending their right, similar to Hobby Lobby, but from a religious perspective, as religious a religious order and a Catholic order of nuns um, who provide services to uh, the elderly, poor, and dying for free. They take care of them until they until the end of their lives and accompany them. Um, they it similarly did not want to provide these drugs and services in their employee health care plan. Who knew that the government would be forcing nuns to provide contraceptives? It's just wild. Um, <laughs> and we've been working on those cases for about six years. We won it at the Supreme Court and then at the state level again where we're back up um, hopefully on fr- tomorrow we'll find out if the Supreme Court's going to take their case again. So those wow. are the two really big, you know, high profile cases. The ones that are nine zero wins. So unanimous victories you probably haven't heard about. So I started off telling you that we defend people A through Z, Anglican to Zoroastrian. Everyone who has a religious belief deserves to um, live it out in the public square as a full citizen of the United States, not as a half citizen that has to check their religion at the door when they go into work or when they go into a government building or even just when they're um, informing how they vote or how they think about educational issues or when they walk into uh, a schoolhouse. So what does that mean? It means that one of the cases that we had before the Supreme Court was defending a Muslim prisoner and his right to have a quarter inch beard. Now, you think, oh, beards, oh, prisons, you can hide things in a beard. This is a security issue. Well, turns and out. who's actually, measuring is the other thing I'm thinking. Yeah, <laughs> well, the, the prison guards do measure these things because wow. for medical reasons, you're allowed to have a beard, but not for religious reasons. They were arguing that that was not right. Obviously, we knew it was religious targeting, but um, Justice Scalia, God rest his soul, when he was on the bench and he heard this case, he, he laughed and he said, well, what's he going to hide in a quarter inch beard, a little mini revolver, you know, (laughs) nothing. Right. So sometimes it's just about being reasonable. So we won that case 
9-0 at the Supreme Court. Every single justice gave it a thumbs up and said, this is important for us. We believe in religious liberty. When the government has taken all of your rights, this is the one right that we have to protect, our ability to change our minds um, and, you know, to let our spirits be changed and moved when we're in confinement. Yeah. Um, so not always what we would think of as a partisan issue, right? Absolutely. And then the other case is one that's back up at the Supreme Court now. It's called Hosanna Tabor, where we were defending a Lutheran uh, church and school and their right to fire and hire their own teachers. Mm, sounds kind of weird, right? Well, well, it turns out that a school, a religious school in particular, uh, and a ministry, uh, the Catholic church, a Lutheran church, a Protestant church, you, you should be able to choose who teaches your faith to your faithful, not the government. Because the government, one, is no expert on religion, knows nothing about religion, probably. They are not subject matter experts on Judaism or Christianity in any way or the way that those things are supposed to function. But also, they don't know what it means to do a good job teaching the next generation. They actually can't measure that. But religious people can. People within their own communities can. They know what good teaching and bad teaching from a religious perspective really is. And this church was being um, harassed, basically, for not uh, for firing a teacher that, that had a complaint against them. They didn't want to renew her contract. She wasn't performing well. Um, and... They have every right to do that. And we won that again, 9-0, nine thumbs up at the Supreme Court. Uh, why? Because it turns out that that separation between the church and state is, exists to protect the church. It exists to protect the church from being co-opted by the government. The government would love to co-opt religion. They, they, they did it for years. The American experiment is based on the idea that the government cannot touch what's in our hearts and what's in our minds. So... Those two cases are lesser known, but just as important and start to bleed into this discussion about education, right? And where we're at today at the Supreme Court. Absolutely. And I would say that that last case that you cite, probably uh, we could make the same argument for public schools generally, <laughs> that all schools, no matter, you know, district, charter, private should be able to hire and fire, uh, especially when it comes down to matters of performance. But so I am curious to know, as you know, this new, this uh, not new case, but the case that that we'll all be watching closely at the end of the month is about um, states that have these Blaine amendments, um, very much rooted in 19th century um, anti-Catholic bigotry. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious to know what your view is on the legal implications of Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. Yeah. So this is a huge moment. Huge. <laughs> We've been waiting for Absolutely. this for a very long time. We've been litigating to strike down Blaine amendments all over the country. We want a case defending. You wouldn't think you think this is only associated with um, education. It's not. Blaine amendments are used all the time to restrict government uh, funds flowing into all kinds of um, uh, religious institutions or even religious ministries. So a prison ministry that helps fight recidivism in Florida was being stopped by the Freedom From Religion Foundation. We won their case. A uh, New Mexico school that wanted to be able to give a textbook lending program to minority low-income uh, children. Uh, we won their case. And now here we are at the Supreme Court with the Institute for Justice's case um, in Espinoza, uh, where uh, Kendra Espinoza doesn't realize that she's standing for all of these people whose choice is being limited by the government. I mean, these laws were discriminatory by design. They are designed to restrict the ability of people to get access to things that they need. Um, disabled students have access to a school that does exactly what they need. This happened in Oklahoma. Um, Low-income students, like I was saying, to have access to the same books as another school. Um, and in this particular um, instance, 
a mom who sees her daughters in a toxic school environment and wants to pull them out and put them in a better environment. Doesn't that sound absolutely normal? <laughs> just <laughs> common just normal. Sense. Well, it's the parenting that many sense. of us, that many people of means enjoy and wouldn't even think twice about on, on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're here looking at discrimination from many different angles. And you think about the cultural moment that we're living now. These 19th century bigoted laws were anti-immigrant. Forget anti-Catholic, because we know that they were anti-Catholic, and the court has said that a million times, but they were anti-immigrant. At that moment, schools were mostly Protestant, right? And they were mostly... And teaching the Protestant Bible, by the way. Absolutely. Yes, there was religion in schools at that moment, which I find hilarious. But anyway, let's not go there. Let's just (laughs) think about this, this, this cultural moment we're living now where we're all fighting against walls and this and that. And everyone is virtue signaling about the importance of the rights of immigrants and what it looks like to live in a diverse society. Right. And how important that is. Well, turns out that we're sitting here, that same movement that 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 wants to fight for immigrants isn't fighting to get rid of these laws that were originally anti-immigrant. They were anti these Catholics who were coming in. They were different. They didn't really fit in. They had different systems of belief, different culture, right? Oh, no, we are not going to let you have your own schools. You have to join our schools, and you have to be taught what we believe. Wait a minute. All of a sudden, this is a big religious liberty dispute because you're talking about religious pluralism. You're talking about diversity in the most normal level, which is, again, like I mentioned earlier, about what, what's in your heart and what's in your mind and what you want your future and your family to look like. So this is a big moment. It's one where everyone, for the reasons that I just explained, should be really rallying around getting rid of these bigoted discriminate, discriminatory laws. And I think that the Supreme Court is going to do something good. I mean, we just don't allow that kind of discrimination in American society. And this would be a great first step. It's this great piece that is going to open up um, the, the, the way that these, the getting rid of these laws is, should be applied at the state level. It, there's no real silver bullet, right? There's no way to get rid of this completely, but the Supreme Court can definitely send an important signal and a shot around the country to wake everyone up so that we know that we have to get rid of this. Yeah, and, and we can hope they do. And of course, we don't know how states will behave, even if they basically say that Blaine amendments or most Blaine amendments are, um, are you know, uh, unconstitutional. But, um, mm-hmm. but, but nonetheless, it could be, it's an incredibly important case. You know, I'm struck, Monsi, by um, how many just really brilliant people I know, friends I have, whether in or outside of education, who not only have no idea of Blaine amendments, which exist in the states that they live in for the most part, but also oh, yeah. um, no idea of the of the the history related with them, the bigotry, as you said, anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, anti-everything except white Protestants, basically. Um, and I'm curious about, to me, this really connects to this notion that uh, sometimes we feel like, you know, um, an old person like myself or, or my co-host, Bob, I would say, not that he's old, you know, <laughs> ranting and raving about the fact that um, we, we really have no good history education left, or maybe we're not teaching these kinds of things in, in civics courses or talking about religious liberties in our K-12 public schools where most, of, or maybe not private schools too, but in the, in the places where most of our children are educated. I'm wondering what your take is um, about the level of knowledge of the general public or, or K-12 students about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all of these things that you are thinking about every single day. 
Yeah, so I'm going to use a bunch of buzzwords that you're probably going to hate, but um, we live in a really <laughs> privileged <it>. society <laughs> where we don't have to think about this. I, I'm coming from Mexico where in the 1920s they were murdering priests and hanging them off of telephone poles. I mean, it was impossible for you to believe that you had full religious freedom. I mean, the Senate right now in Mexico is entertaining a um, bill that would allow uh, religious orders to own property and priests to vote. I mean, wow. read, rewind and play that four times. <laughs> yeah. So the reality here is we are so spoiled and so privileged to have this incredible freedom to do what we want and say what we want without government persecution that we don't think about it. However, so I agree with you, there is no real um, kind of in-depth knowledge anymore about the Constitution, but because we live it every day. And um, so people don't have this detailed um, chapter and verse knowledge of the First Amendment, but their natural impulse is there. And the reality of what they think is right and wrong is still there. Um, we put out a, a, a poll that bleeds into an index, an annual index on religious freedom, and we fare off much better than you think. Um, Three-fourths of Americans believe that we should be taking action to protect religious liberty and that the government should be wielding its insane power to be able to protect religious liberty, taking action. Um, and so the natural impulse of most people isn't cancel culture. Um, Americans mm. are so much better than what you see on Facebook and Twitter in their daily lives. And they just, they don't, they don't care that their neighbor disagrees with them as long as it doesn't get in their way. Um, most of the time we've become a live and let live culture. I don't think that's enough. I actually don't believe in live and let live. I think that you should want the best for your neighbor um, rather than allowing them to just make mistakes. But that's the minimum, right? That's, that's the foundation. That's where we're at. And we're going to build on top of that by enriching our culture. Um, most millennials and most um, Gen Z uh, students have experienced discrimination in some way in their lives, uh, mostly religious discrimination. So you also have a generation that that was one of the findings from our index. You have a generation of individuals who have personally experienced religious discrimination. This is new. It's brand new. We were talking about racial discrimination, um, you know, for, for the generation probably ahead of mine. Um, immigrant waves that cause similar um, feelings about immigration and about brownness um, that you're dealing with today and our generation. So the one behind mine, Gen Z, young millennials, this is going to be the issue of their time. They are going to say, I have experienced that and I want to protect someone from having to bear that horrible burden. Wow. So really encouraging information, actually. Absolutely. Sort of a depressing question. Well, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> I want to ask you about something else that just feels very encouraging to me, and that is um, the Canterbury Medal, the highest honor for religious liberty that, um, that, that your foundation, that Beckett gives. And I, I was hoping you could tell us specifically about a couple of its recipients, U.S. Senate Chaplain Barry Black, um, former Cuban religious dissident and political prisoner Armando Vajedares, and, and of course, First, um, I was a professor at BU for some 10 years, so the great Eli Wiesel, um, all recipients of this medal, and I hope I didn't butcher too many names there, but could, could you tell me a little bit about, about this award and, and maybe about some of these wonderful people um, on whom you've bestowed it? Absolutely. Um, so don't worry about butchering names. Um, English is my second language. I butcher names all the time, and I apologize <laughs> for it, so apologies in advance. Um, but um, yes, the Canterbury Medal is the greatest religious freedom award we believe in the country um, that, that the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty has been bestowing for 25 years. And it is for courage in defense of religious liberty, named after Thomas Beckett, um, 
who was martyred. He was Archbishop in, um, in Canterbury. He was martyred for standing up against the government, standing up against the king and defending the rights of conscience. And what does that teach us? Someone is willing to die for these rights, um, to stand up for others, knowing that they're not going to actually be able to live it, but they're sacrificing themselves for the people coming behind them. That is the kind of leadership and courage that we give an award to. And um, Chaplain Barry Black is a great example. He is on the front lines in the Senate, um, preaching and encouraging people to to use those leadership skills and take their leadership role and actually speak out in defense of um, religious liberty. Armando Valladares, wow, what an incredible story, who was friends, is, well, Elie Wiesel passed away, so was friends with Elie Wiesel. Um, and he was a Cuban dissident who was imprisoned for 22 years in Fidel Castro's gulag, uh, tortured when he was released through the great plight and work of his, of his wife. Um, he couldn't walk. He was in a wheelchair. He wrote poetry in tiny, tiny little pieces of paper to sneak them out to tell people what was happening in his in his life uh, for those 22 years, all because he wouldn't put a sign on his desk that said, I am with Fidel. That's what it took. Amazing. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. yeah. 22 years of your life in solitary confinement, imprisoned, naked half the time, having people, you know, defecating on you. It's horrifying. If you yeah. read his book, Against All Hope, it's, it's incredible. And it's a story of optimism, but has some horrifying realities. A lot of, of pain. Kind of torture. Yeah. yeah, a lot of pain. Um, and Elie Wiesel, what can you say about that man? It, it, oh. The most incredible part to me is that even in his last moments, I believe that the speech that he gave honoring Armando Valladares, his friend, his fellow dissident, right, um, was the last speech that he gave before he passed on, two weeks before wow. he passed on. So that's a great moment for us where he would, you know, in his last moments, take his final strength to honor someone else with courage, to pass on that light, pass on that torch. Um, and I, I hope that I see Armando Valladares giving more speeches. Um, his work at the UN uh, defending prisoners of conscience is uh, is renowned. Yeah. And all of us who have been able to sort of, um, you know, uh, listen to these people, read their work or, or rub shoulders with them in any way, in any way, so lucky. And, um, and the next generation hopefully will, will have, you'll, you'll elevate more heroes like this for folks to, to learn about and to learn from. So Monty, thank you so much for your time today. Such an important conversation, especially in this particular cultural moment, I think. And it's just such a pleasure to, to speak with you and to learn from you. Uh, for our listeners out there, she is Monse Alvarado of the Beckett Fund. You can find her on Twitter at M Monse, that's M-O-N-T-S-E, Alvarado, A-L-V-A-R-A-D-O. And um, thanks so much for your time today. We hope to have you back again. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. back everybody to wrap up the program here um let's see uh, my uh, commentary of the week i picked was from the great virginia walden ford who's not just a virginia walden ford she's miss virginia meaning uh not from a beauty pageant but miss virginia of the new movie called miss virginia which is about school choice and in fact though anyone in new jersey might want to uh while supplies last we're actually probably about 85 percent sold out for our screening of the miss virginia movie on january 23rd 
2020. So you can check for that. But Virginia Walden Ford, whose life, uh, about whose life the movie Miss Virginia was made, wrote this. Empower parents with school choice. And, and she writes, in more than two decades of fighting for educational freedom of her opponents offer a lot of excuses as to why parents shouldn't have the ability to uh, select schools as the, that their children attend. She says some people think school choice will harm public education. Others fret that good schools might lack enough space for all those interested in attending. But the most insidious objection, here we go, Kara. She says the most insidious objection to school choice stems from the idea that some families, for instance, families with lower incomes or limited English proficiency, might find the process of selecting a school just too intimidating or too hard to arrive at a good result. And so now this is back me talking. She she I love her calling out this kind of condescension that you hear all the time. And racism. That we educated suburban parents know good and well when our little princes or princesses aren't doing as they should in school. But those low-income people need to just be ordered to a government school by a government bureaucrat. Uh, If their kid is being ignored, bullied, or recruited by bad characters, well, gee, who cares? They they can't even really tell what's good for them. So just – have the system order them around. So that the words, this, those I was my little uh, paraphrase at the end there. But uh, empowering parents with school choice, my commentary of the week from Virginia Walden Ford. Love it. Love it. And I'm here with the tweet of the week. This from CBS New York earlier in this week, uh, January 5th. Thousands are walking across the Brooklyn Bridge for an anti-hate march and rally in support of the Jewish community. Ahead of the march, Governor Andrew Cuomo and Senator Chuck Schumer both called for government action to combat hate crime. So this, Bob, I think, you know, especially, I mean, what luck that we just had on um, Muncie from, from the Beckett Fund with her really optimism about the state of the world and the fact that we um, we as a people generally do appreciate religious liberty and are for religious liberty. And this this image of so many walking in solidarity with the Jewish community, which has been relentlessly attacked in, in well, for how long, but um, but really heightened in recent years, in recent months, and um, and probably not getting the press that it should, I would say, in in these um in these very polarizing times. Um, Tying in with our earlier main story about uh, religious Yeah, and this is a real, I think, moment of hope. And I know, Bob, that that you're not much for kids walking out of school in protest, but I like to think that these kinds of um, um, shows of community and solidarity are really, really important. And whether or not they're walking, I hope that our kids see it. So. Well, I'm, I'm kind of, someone call me a hypocrite on that, Kara. If it's a school of choice, then I think it's fine. They, they, they can't, then it's a field trip. I'm, I'm, I'm going to call you a hypocrite on that. All right, question. fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, and that brings us to a conclusion of the 17th episode of the Learning Curve podcast, America's finest education podcast, as, uh, as determined by a survey of the people in my office. And so, <laughs> and Kara, thank you for your participation. Only two of my kids. <laughs> We have we have fifty percent of Kara's children supporting our podcast as the <laughs> finest, and so well, more than fifty. That but, gives us room for growth. All right, room for growth. all right. And so next week we've got uh, the great Darrell Bradford, executive vice president oh, of Fifty Can. Really excited uh, to to wrap with him. So, aren't we all? All right. So we'll see you next time. See you next time. Hear you next time, Bob. Take care. 